Hello, welcome to Time to Say Goodbye. Uh, we are in early August right now. This week is just me and Tammy. Um, we should say at the top, because this is how we're going to order things now, but if you'd like to support our show, it's $5 a month. We would really appreciate it. Tammy and I basically, I don't know, we do put quite a bit of effort into the show. The listenership that we have right now is wonderful. It is vibrant. And it is exactly, well, not even, it is beyond what Tammy and I really could have imagined when we started the show. However, we like, you know, it'd be great to grow and to see if we can add more things to the show. And that really depends on listener participation. I feel like I'm doing an NPR thing you know, <laughs> right now. Anyway, goodbye.substack.com, $5 like a month. Yeah, exactly. Or patreon.com slash pod. That's it. All right, Tammy, how are you doing? <laughs> I'm good. We had a really good meetup in New York the other day with Discord subscribers. Right. Um, That's one of the things you I think I told you we were going to meet Rob. Yeah, our soul chapter president. It was great. And um, yeah, it's like I'm always surprised at the people who turn out. There were a bunch of new faces. So thanks to everybody who came out. Otherwise, yeah, I'm good. I've just been in the city in my apartment. And I took a COVID test today because I thought I had it. Wow. Throwback. Yeah. What it, how did it come I out? I know. I've been feeling really terrible, like scratchy throat and congested. Oh. It was negative, which was almost disappointing. <laughs> really? I don't know. I man. wanted I an answer. You know? I hated having COVID. It was miserable. It was like terrible. I, we had no, to miss all sorts of stuff that I wanted to do. And yeah. I didn't even get sick, you know, so it was, and then everyone in our <laughs> house got it. And then I was just like, well, this sucks. You know, none of us can do anything now. And so I know it was like six, seven days of just total isolation and boredom and it then, does suck yeah and then yeah. we started testing negative and it was fine but um yeah uh there's like a surge here and i don't know yeah. i don't want to be bad on? i don't want to be like the bad guy but i just can't like if i you know if i feel sick i'll test <laughs> and i care. won't go places but like i just you know yeah. i don't know what a surge means at this point and um it just feels like there's almost this reflexive thing where if it goes up, then it's a surge. If it goes down, then, you know, nobody talks about it. But it feels like most people right. are beyond that point right now. Um, yeah. yeah. What have you been up to? I um, I played a little bit of music the other day. Whoa. Played violin in a little nice. ensemble that was also related to our Discord. Because <laughs> there's a bunch of classical musicians in there. That's been really nice. <laughs> yeah, the most stereotypical shit. We also have a math club. <laughs> <laughs> Basically. That's, well, that's we not like, true. But... <laughs> language class, math yeah. club, debate team. Debate team, yeah, exactly. <laughs> what else do Asians do now? Tennis. We have a tennis society. And <laughs> women's ball. golf we're really into. No, actually, I didn't know that we had a classical music ensemble. This is, you guys, this is new. You we'll guys see can be like continues. the band at the magazine we work at. I know. You know? Are you um, adjusted back to the mainland? I I have. And actually, yesterday, I went and saw the new Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie with my daughter Ooh. and a friend and his son. And uh, first of all, it's quite good. I mean, it's enjoyable. My kid loved it. it. And uh, it's interesting because the, I don't I did want to talk about it on the show today for a couple of reasons. The first is that like I found there's this new type of animation style that I think is in, you know, it, the first time, the first big movie it was in was, uh, you know, the first Spider-Verse movie yeah. right, with Miles Morales. That was great. Yeah. And then it, obviously in the second one, you have like a kind of almost sketchy type of animation style that's in a lot of the scenes with, especially with Spider-Girl or spider One. I think it's mm -hmm. Spider-Girl, right? Um where it feels almost like it's missing frames. I think that's how they do it. Like they kind of make it jerky yeah it's a lot more impressionistic than the type of coco lemon and that's what i call it at least because that's what, what is that the worst version of it is coco lemon is this wildly popular youtube channel that is like kids videos and okay. it's like the bane of I, a lot of people have written about it how it's like the bane of parents because everything's so kind of creepy <laughs> right the animation's a little creepy the songs are just repetitive and annoying but kids are like so drawn to it in this way that's like quite fascinating almost scary in a little way you know in some ways huh. but right you have this like era of inner animation that um 
sort of driven by Pixar in a lot of ways, and it's great, right? Like you have Up, you have uh, sort of, I think the best version of it was Coco, right? You have this kind of oh, like so beautiful dreamscape, but the animation style is similar, right? Like it's it's somewhat similar. And I think that given that nobody wants like hyper-realistic animation for all sorts of reasons, yeah. first of all, it's weird. And secondly, it's you so have that- creepy. Right, you have like this uncanny valley problem, yeah, exactly. right? That at some point there was going to be a break from that and back yeah. to something new. And I just find this style to be really pleasing in a lot of ways. Like it's just feels fresh. And that I think that it really does kind of like at some point people will get tired of it, right? When it keeps happening. But I don't know. I find it much more engaging to watch as an adult, right? And so. So um, I was like, since I haven't seen it, but I was looking at um, the trailer and some clips. So I think like what you were describing and what I saw was like, it sort of looks like, I mean, it's obviously drawing on this sort of comic book tradition. Because it's sort of splotchy and it kind of goes right. from sort of sketch to fully realized painting sort of thing. But the characters are very like round and romantic looking in a way. Something. Right. It looks sort of at times it looks like the book Madeline, right? Like, uh, yeah, like the, the paintbrush uh, right. like strokes you can see and stuff. Yeah, it's really Madeline. Pretty. I've read all the books because my daughter liked it when she was a child. And, Aww. you know, I always was very impressed by those books. I don't know if they've been canceled or not. I guess, like, I don't think so. <laughs> Babar, Babar was definitely canceled, right? Babar but, was, like, obviously problematic. <laughs> what was that about? Well, Madeline's, like, she's rich, right? No, no, she no. Have... She lives in, oh. like, an orphanage, basically. Oh, she lives in an orphanage. Okay, right, okay. Right, right, right. Um, well, not an orphanage, but she lives in, like, a house for girls type of thing. She okay. lives next door to a rich kid, right? But, okay. um, yeah, no, we don't have to clash shame Madeline. <laughs> <laughs> Madeline. Madeline, you privileged jerk. <laughs> yes, Madeline, privileged discourse. <laughs> I think peace. <laughs> it's like I literally live in a school for girls, you know. But um, yeah, she had like that one will occasionally in the books zoom out, and you'll get these beautifully rendered. I believe to be beautifully rendered, very sketchy drawings of Paris, right? Or and right, right, like right. really beautiful colors, everything like that. And that's what it felt like to me that you see New York from time to time in this way. Um, And uh, same with, you know, same with Into the the Spider-Verse, right? With Uh those movies, there's like this visually pleasing element to it. And I don't know if children respond to it in any sort of way, although they must, right? Like, I don't think that kids want to see bad animation either. Mm -hmm. But um, for adults, it's interesting. It's like, a draw, I think, that gives the movies a little bit more maturity than they would have yeah. beforehand. And, you know, right. they, it sort of demands they be taken more seriously. Yeah. Even if, like, the animation process eventually becomes formulaic or whatever. Right now, it at least still feels a bit fresh. But, yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. I, I'm yeah. pretty selective on... Uh, my daughter, thankfully has no movie fear like around this age it's quite common for kids through no fault of their own to be a little bit worried or scared of movies especially like loud things or whatever oh really yeah my my kid will watch literally anything and in a way that's actually almost too like not sent like too insensitive (laughs) stuff but um yeah i think uh I try and be selective about which things I watch with her, not for her sake, but for my sake, you know, and like this thing, <laughs> this thing like kind of checked a lot of the boxes, but, um, the mo- the thing, the other thing I wanted to talk about it was that like the most interesting part of it was like the soundtrack. And this is where yeah. I think like, uh, movies, kids movies are in this interesting space right now because I was I I knew nothing about the movie except that the animation was a little bit interesting when I sat when I you know you'd when we seen sat the there. previews and stuff. No, I hadn't even seen the oh, previews. Okay. I just saw like a picture of it or something gotcha. like that. Okay. Um, but like they had Annie up, you know, which for listeners should know is you know the great MOP anthem about robbing people. <laughs> um, they had De La Soul. They had Tribe Called Quest, right? Like they had, it, it felt like if you could come up with when we were growing up, like the stereotypical 
dorm room rap I know. rotation. <laughs> I was looking at the I was looking at the soundtrack and is like no diggity is in it. Like, oh yeah, it's no like diggity. No. And also Ice Cube is in the movie. Yeah, yeah, Ice Cube which plays. Is so funny. Ice, so Ice Cube like, plays the villain yeah. in it. Yeah, and it's like <laughs> it was like, and he has like certain you know. He has like certain little Easter eggs from his lyrics, right? Where that so he funny. says, and so um, clearly they're trying to please the dads in the yeah. <laughs> in the well, it's I think it's so beautiful because I think I was telling you, but I've been thinking a lot about aging and music recently, just because I've had some like nostalgic tunes come through, and obviously, like both of us are in our forties and. As you were saying, I think like there's this little bit of looping of the stuff that we enjoyed as kids now kind of like maturing or like people like we're obviously parent parents age. And so we're taking our kids to enjoy things that basically reference our childhoods. And so because the first Mutant Ninja movie, I think, was 1990. Right. So it's almost like this perfect alignment with like our childhood. So I just thought I think that's so funny. Yeah, they have a second. The second one was the one that Vanilla Ice was in. Okay. Right? And that's the one where he sings the Go Ninja, Go oh, Ninja, Go song. That's and that was also in the movie. That's right? in the soundtrack. Yeah. That's and great. it was it was like, I you know, I, I somewhat impervious or try to beat it to nostalgia. And I don't like being manipulated, <laughs> but I gotta say this one, this one worked. This on one me. worked. You yeah, got tricked. It was just yeah. like they, when they started playing De La Soul, I was just like, oh my God. This is working, <laughs> you know. I can't believe it, but it's it's working. My oh. kid, of course, has no idea who. Did yeah, well, that's. I think that is so funny. <laughs> I mean, I guess now I'm just thinking like, animation has kind of like always been this way. Our children's stuff has always had little things for adults, right. but we weren't old enough to know. <laughs> right, right, right. No, <laughs> I went with my friend who's my age, and his kid is Frankie's age, and um, oh, I turned cute. to him and I was like. You know, they were really hyper-targeting dads in this. And <laughs> they somehow hyper-targeted the exact age of the people who would be getting their kids to see this movie. Seriously. <laughs> because I was just like, oh, my God, I cannot believe that they're That's playing so this type of music. But, yeah, I agree. What what songs are you getting nostalgic about? Like, which ones are returning to you? Well, I've been – I was like – I think I mentioned this in the Discord, but I've been listening to, like, DJ music from the late 90s and 2000s and I went to see Kid Koala who's this oh DJ God. that I like the other day and he's like he was he like a few years older than us but not like radically older but you know he has like a teenage daughter he has like a dad bod you know it's just right. it was and everyone in the audience it's an all ages show so people brought their kids I mean I, and I just thought like oh my god this is so bizarre this guy used to play all night DJ shows you know so um, that sort of made me feel old. And then I think I went to, I've gone to karaoke a couple times recently and we sang a lot of like nineties hip hop and R and B. So that's probably <laughs> like, that's like the teenage mutant Ninja turtle soundtrack. <laughs> I know. I know. The first time this occurred to me was, uh, like, I do think that like I, I, for a while, I think the conventional wisdom is that children these days are, have access to any type of music at any yeah. time. And so cycles of music don't really matter as much to them. I imagine that this is true. Right. Like uh, and that they can discover anything. But the mm-hmm. point is that they don't because, you know, people have limited attention spans. Yeah. You can't listen to all the music all the time. But the first time this occurred to me was when I was a teacher and this was probably around 2005 or something like that. So mm-hmm. I don't know, a long time ago, 2006, maybe. How long ago is that? 17 years ago? <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. Nice. So the kids who I taught then are in their 30s now. So that's. Wow. Uh, but. You know, I was wandering around. There were these two kids. They were brothers, um, and they wanted to be rappers. And this was at this sort of private school in San Francisco for, you know, it wasn't the best of the private schools, but the kids were very nice. And a lot of them, you know, I don't know. I think they would classify the school as being like, you know, it's a little burnouty, right? Uh, it's not like the hyper-competitive academic one. It's not a prep school, but... Uh, like, yeah, yeah. I but mean, it's preparing yeah. them for, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's preparing them for, I don't know what it's preparing them for. Like but pretty I, good schools. I, I enjoyed teaching there because the kids weren't competitive and the parents weren't like asking about grades all the time. Right. Uh-huh. Like they were just happy that their kids were in school right, and that yeah. they were talking about it. So then I could <laughs> okay. say, Hey, why don't we read 
Joan Diddy in, and then we could talk about it. And then, you know, half the Aww. kids would not be in class or, you know, a third of them wouldn't be in class. And yeah, but the six or seven kids who actually did the reading would be like wonderful to talk about because Amazing. they actually are yeah. people who, you know, thought about it. They didn't feel the pressure to turn it into like an eighth grade. And so we would have these great conversations. I really like teaching there. But That's cool. these two kids wanted to be rappers and they were listening. I They would talk to me about rap. And at some point they were listening to uh, Smith & Wesson, The Shining, which is like a great album that I used to listen to when I was in high school. And I was like, why are you listening to that? You Did know? you? Oh, you didn't give it to them. That's no, I didn't funny. give okay. it to them. They were listening uh -huh. to it independently. And okay. I was like, well, you know, it's, you know, it's, it's not like it's the deepest cut. Uh -huh. But like, this is like right. two teenagers and 2006 listening to this i was like why do you it's listen so to this? this is what i used to listen to when i was in high school and they're like well then they one of them announced to me like quite confidently he was like yeah that type of stuff you know it's great we just listen to the good stuff now because we can just download it you know oh wow and i remember feeling this panic at the time because i was like well now like these type like i part of my identity is gone <laughs> right? yeah. Yeah, because like these kids are gonna steal this from me you know i can't hold it <laughs> over them i can't just be like your music sucks you know <laughs> but i don't think that's really been true honestly i i think that uh that maybe it's really overwhelming to you know like even yeah. if you are a sort of like digital crate digger or whatever whatever it's you need so much time it's the same kind of problem as before like you need less money but more time yeah. Yeah. And it's not, I mean, like, fine. Kate Bush becomes like a giant meme because of Stranger Things, right? And is all over mm -hmm. TikTok or something. But that doesn't mean that like kids are listening to all the music in that genre from that era. You know, it's yeah. just like they found a meme music that they're into, right? Yeah. And so I think it was a bit overdetermined in some ways. Um, That's interesting. I yeah. was curious if you are self conscious about making musical, like, deciding the musical environment that your kids are in because like I think my my mom and dad had like certain kinds of music that they brought over from Korea or that, that they were like interested in and but we didn't live in like a household that did any kind of connoisseurship like my right. dad wasn't like oh you have to learn like all these albums or like oh, no, you have no, to no. read this great book like we just didn't have like that kind of thing and but I remember really liking Neil Diamond and the Beatles because he played that a lot and right um, I, I wrote once wrote this really short thing about Neil Diamond, like through my dad. And so that's like, those are like the kinds of tunes I associate him with, but like, he didn't do that self-consciously, but you are someone who you are thinking about like your music and your writing and stuff. So do you, what are you trying to do with Frankie? Like, are you thinking like, Oh, I, I need to play this so that she'll pick it up. Or I don't want to play this because then she'll pick it up. Um, when she was born, I played a lot of classical music specifically mm -hmm. the stuff that I thought was, I think I've talked about this before, but you know, I, at the beginning of her life, she listened to a lot of Bach just cause I believed in, have a somewhat passing belief in Gertel Escher Bach, which is, you know, this idea that there are loops in the universe that vibrate at a universal pitch and that the mysteries of the universe can be seen through understanding these types of loops. Right. And I thought that it would help develop her brain in some ways. Um, and uh, then I was kind of disabused of that idea quite quickly because I got this kind of silly. And I'm also forcing this child to listen to Goldberg variations over and over and over and over <laughs> again. And so uh, I stopped there, but I don't know. I mean, you know, I don't, I gotta say, we don't listen to that much music in the house, right? Yeah. I uh -huh. tend to just listen. I listen to the same stuff over and over again. I don't really... Like, uh, I just listened to basically, I don't know, a lot of gospel music type of stuff or gospel music adjacent stuff, right? Like, I don't know, Staple Sisters. Okay. Or yeah. sorry, Staple Singers, or I listen to Ray Charles or, like you know, like that stuff. sort of vibe. Yeah, very kind of narrow <laughs> vision That's of cool. soul music. Um, and I don't really listen to anything else. You know, um, I <laughs> okay. don't really listen to rap music I listened to when I was a kid, right? I do sometimes by myself, and I don't really listen to, like, any of the more indie rock type of stuff that I sometimes listen to in college, mm. right? Like, mm -hmm. I don't listen to La Tigra, even though I think I would say I probably still like La Tigra. Um, 
Uh, I but do that, some... does that have anything to do with your kids or no? That's just your... no. I just don't okay. do it, and yeah, I guess I just don't quite believe that there is a way to build up taste in a way that is that makes a child more interesting or capable. Yeah. And in fact, okay. I find well, that's the, reassuring. Right, the efforts <laughs> to do so to be quite lame, you know, and <laughs> <laughs> I, but. To be fair, I do think that such exercises are very limited in the number of people that actually do them, right? Like I remember I met a father many years ago. Hopefully he doesn't listen to this podcast, but if so, he probably doesn't remember this. But, you know, he told me about how his kids (laughs) just listened to Bob Dylan all the time. His kids were like five at the time. It must be like past college age at this point. It's a long time ago. And he was like bragging about it as a kid, like memorized Bob Dylan li- lyrics. And I kind of looked at him and I was just like, this is so annoying. <laughs> you know, I'm just not going to do this. Right? <laughs> it's like, what does he think is going to happen? Yeah, right? what, like, that I don't understand. Like, like, does he think that the child has taken in something that is truly great, right? And poetic and that right. it will sort of mold his thinking and his way of thinking about language in this way that is important, you know, and that will lead to like a better communicating and more functional Nobel human being. Right. In literature. And, and that it will be better than if this kid just listens to BTS or listens to whatever little children yeah. listen to these days. And, you know, I don't know. I have a hard time in, from a parenting perspective believing that. But I also That's understand that, you know, most parents give up on those types of aspirations quite quickly. Right, because they realize that their kids don't want to listen to anything except Cocoa Melon, right, over and over and over again. Um, so yeah, I don't, I don't really have. Um... What was her reaction to the music in Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles? No reaction. Okay. Yeah, she's just looking for pizza jokes. She just looked for that. Yeah. I guess we talked about this last week or the week before or something, but does is there now merchandise associated with new movies like this, even though it's a really old toy franchise? Oh, like, do they I, retool sure. the toys for? Yeah, I think yeah, so. Yeah. yeah, the music thing though is similar to book reading thing. Yeah, um, Frankie reads now, and it's like a lot of, like the books are not good, right? <laughs> <laughs> are they books? You, they're not books you read as a kid. No, 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 no. But the what books I read as a kid, it's read? like Dogman, Captain Underpants. Dragon okay. Masters is one where it's just like you read it and you're just like, what is this? And how are there 25 of these? <laughs> you know? Wow, what the hell? But at the, she's reading this thing called The Alien Next Door now and it's just like nothing makes sense in it, right? <laughs> but um, it's the same thing as music where you're just happy that the kid is reading yeah, it all, think, you know? And I think most parenting is actually me. like that. I just, I think that the bespoke type of taste children and taste parents are actually quite rare. I think my parents really regret it, you know, because they're like, oh, we had nothing to teach our kids and they didn't have time to sit down with us and do any reading or listening or whatever. But I think it's fine. But it definitely led to a lot of awkwardness, like in college. What do you mean? Because I just didn't have like, like other kids would have like a canon to draw on in terms of like they knew all of this kind of thing. And I just didn't. You know, but you didn't have that in fine. high school through normal socialization. Not like you didn't really. meet kids who were into Led Zeppelin and stuff like no, that. No, I mean, I they existed, and I sort of knew. Like, I had a friend who kind of taught me the basics of like grunge and stuff like that because we were in Tacoma. But not really because I was an orchestra nerd. Oh well, that's the problem. It's not your parents. The problem is that you were an hey, orchestra nerd. Well, whose fault is that? <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. I had. Went through grunge in seventh grade, right? That's about when grunge <laughs> hit for us. And, I guess that's right. Um, uh, I don't know. Music, I, I guess I just feel like, um, I don't know. I just don't think the human brain operates in that sort of way. Yeah. Know? I don't think. Like I do, that's which good. is weird because I do think that reading good books makes you a better writer, for example. For sure. Right? But And so it would follow that other things take place. But I think that that's only really true if, you're making the music itself, right? Like I think that probably musicians should listen to good music, but for the rest of us, it's just kind of like, well, (laughs) something that's going on in the background Um, (laughs) or something that's very meaningful for other reasons, right? And that shouldn't be really like discussed in some sort of way. 
All right, we have a second sure. thing that we wanted to discuss, which was um, Tammy. Why don't you introduce this? Because this okay. is okay. Your... Yeah, I wanted you. I wanted you to help me puzzle through this because I have really mixed feelings about this. So right. obviously, on this show, we've talked. We talk a lot about Asia. It's a really important topic for us, and we talk a lot about international solidarity and the confusing inverse of that, which is tankyism. And we've had a lot of shows that have explored that, which basically, like, to summarize for people who may not have listened to those episodes, is people who, in opposing U.S. empire, U.S. hegemony, kind of go too far the other way and end up being, like, defenders of Russia, defenders of China. Right. Um, And there was an article in the Times on Saturday, which was ostensibly an investigation by, like, a shocking number of journalists. It was like 10 people on the investigations team titled a global web of Chinese propaganda leads to a U.S. tech mogul. Right. And the piece is an investigation into Roy Singham and his wife, Jody Evans. We've sort of touched on this before, I think, because like in conversations with Wilfred Chan and uh, Brian Hugh, we've talked about different funding networks and sort of activist right. networks that have supported like China, the pro-Chinese perspective, right? Like against Hong Kong protesters, against Uyghurs. Darren Byler too, when he came to talk to us about the Uyghur situation has, has touched on this. Um, in New York City, people will know what Roy funds because the People's Forum is like a really important like left-wing gathering space. Um, Vijay uh, Prasad runs a Roy Singham funded thing called Tricontinental, which sort of oversees People's Forum and also has branches in other countries. So anyway, the, the point of this article is basically to say that Roy Singham and like all these like, you know, shady ways is like very cozy with the Chinese government and is funding groups that are called like no cold war. Um, Jody's organization is like a very historic, well, not historic, but like in recent history has been a significant anti-war organization called code pink, which is co-run by Medea Benjamin, who people might know as like a pretty significant um, feminist and, you know, pacifist. So anyway, basically the point was to say, here is a dissection of how, propaganda works on the left. Um, Here's a guy who's put his tech fortune into funding organizations that essentially serve at the PS of the Chinese government. Okay, so one of my problems with this piece is that like very little of the investigation was new. Like most of the facts in this piece were actually known and have been reported before, but it was kind of um, couched as this like really deep investigation that like shed light into like these very, very... um, spurious like dealings right and then i think the the other thing though that is more interesting is this question of like okay well if you if you have a sort of critique of u.s empire and you maybe um are going too far into being like defending china like that is bad but does that necessarily then make like everything this guy does and everything he funds this like sort of like criminal-ish enterprise that is like fueling that is spreading chinese propaganda And I think this to me is the thing that's confusing because you can see variants of this sort of accusation in lots of different contexts where it's like if there's any sort of, you know, relationship to the government, like on the other side, these sorts of people would say to organizations that do democracy work, like in Asia and Africa, oh, you got money from the U.S. State Department. That means you're in bed with the U.S. And that means nothing you do is legitimate, you know. And so I sort of, even though I agree with some of the critiques of what Code Pink and Roy Singham's organizations have done recently. I don't know that this is like some conspiracy that is like driven by the Chinese government. So I guess I was curious what your take was, because I think it touches also on like your previous critiques of disinformation. Um, You know, how are we supposed to sort of interpret these these kinds of things when it does sort of line up with a state, but it's not really reducible to that. Yeah, I mean, I think that the broad critique of this or the first level or first order of skepticism would be that, um, look, there's a tradition in journalism now in which you sort of trace the money, right? And the people who wrote this story are quite good at that. And some of them are some of the best at that job. Sure. Tracing the money. Follow the money is important for sure. Right. So like that, you know, it's David, David Fahrenthold is in particular has been great about that, right? Like his, his uh, work following trump right for mm-hmm. example was was quite in you know it was great it's great work um the skepticism that generally you have as the first order of your response to this is like 
all right, like uh, all things are funded in some way, right? Uh-huh. And that there's great significance that's put into certain associations that maybe there's a politicization of that type of association that doesn't actually mean the thing that they're trying to tell you that it means. So for example, yeah. right, like the, the number one, the right is the, you know, the right does this all the time, right? They say that something is funded by George Soros, right? And we've right. talked about this on the show, which is that, yeah. you know, George Soros does fun things, right? Like it's not like he, <laughs> yes. he's like some dude who's just chilling out, right? And playing yeah. tennis and actually is like, well, I haven't put a dollar into anything, right? He does fun things, right? And <laughs> that the association of George Soros to the right means that, you know, uh, everything is, you know, whatever type of meme type of uh, anti-Semitic thing you want to do, yeah, that that's how they tar- tarnish any type of movement, right? Like, um, mm-hmm. uh, now, does that mean that there's nothing to say about George Soros and the funding that he does? No, it means that people should still talk about it, but it becomes difficult when the overarching grand narrative of this is is like, Ooh, George Soros, yes, right? Yes, exactly. So I think that there is a way in which, um, you know, uh, we, we saw this before, I think, in terms of, um, like you said, the disinformation type of thing, right? Where um, somebody like faves a Facebook group and it's associated <laughs> with like yeah. the quote alt-right. And then suddenly, you know, there's a whole narrative that is spun. And what's interesting is that the narrative is not really spun in the text itself. It's just all implicit, right? Mm-hmm. And that that's what I found interesting about this piece in itself. The, I, I just want to read the last paragraph. Just mm-hmm. last month, Mr. Singham attended a Chinese Communist Party propaganda forum. In a photo taken during a breakout session on how to promote the party abroad, Mr. Singham is seen jotting in a notebook adorned with a red hammer and sickle. <laughs> And you're just like, all right, man, you know, it's so like, yeah. why did you end this piece with that? <laughs> you know? It just sounds like the most I red baited thing like, possible. I know. I felt like I was reading something from the 60s. And I think I, that was the reaction, know. you know, and I just like the I, I think like he and other people in these organizations would be like, yeah, I am sympathetic to communism and I am right. sympathetic to the Chinese model. It's like I, they're not running around denying it, you know, and I. Yeah, I don't support the Chinese state and I have lots of critiques of it, but I feel like this piece made me like really defensive of these organizations. Well, because like the question is like, is there a way to be supportive of China and to perhaps even take money? Because you actually believe that, right? You actually believe in the Chinese model. Exactly. You believe that the that the Chinese have been subject to unfair criticism from the West. You Mm -hmm. do worry about a cold war, right? And the consequences right. well, that's of that. The thing. You like, do worry exactly. about the p- potential for nuclear annihilation because of these two superpowers, you know, squaring off against one another, what feels like a totally inevitable march, right? Um, is there a way to do that in a way that is sympathetic to China without being called a tanky or without having, you know, money investigated? Now, Right. The answer to that is, well, if you don't have the money part of it, then there's no investigation. Nobody right? cares about you. <laughs> right. But that's the thing is like, yeah. the, I agree. Yeah. I, I sort of share your consternation here because I do actually find that reporting to be quite interesting, right? Um, it is interesting to think about how these funds happen, but I totally reject the sort of implicit part of this argument, which is that nobody can actually in good faith decide to use their money and their activism to support China, you know, that uh, anybody who is doing so must be a brainwashed bot or like, you know, being held at gunpoint. And that is the implication in this piece, I think. And I just think that, look, if you could prove that, that that would be there. But when you just kind of whisper it through passages like that last one where the guy is like jotting in a notebook adorned with a red hammer and sickle, like, how do you want people on the <laughs> oh, left to man. respond to that, right? It's like so now, bad. the answer is that nobody who wrote this piece, well, maybe they do personally, but, you know, the the production that created this piece doesn't care what, right. you know, leftists like us say, and right. perhaps they shouldn't, right? Which is fine, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's hard because, like, our friend and former guest, like Brian Hugh, is quoted in the piece as right, saying it. that, you know, the machinery of tricontinental and other organizations funded by Singham are spreading lies, for instance, about Hong Kong protesters, right? That they're in Pelosi's bag and, you know, this sort of thing. Um, 
I think at the same time, like, I'm sure Brian bristled at that, the end of that story too, you know, because I think there, there's a difference also between, I think, the creation of certain structures to do left activism and individual events and people and, you know, seminars and things that they fund that end up being like very problematic in this way. But the fact that Singham is funding a left wing space in midtown Manhattan to host leftists or funding, you know, a left wing newspaper in South Africa or whatever, like there's nothing wrong with that, you know? And so Anyway, I feel like this story made me sort of, I don't know if red pilled is the right answer or whatever, but the yeah, the red baiting in it was weird. I also feel like demonizing an organization called No Cold War is sort of funny. Um, yeah, but I mean, again, I, it, I just felt very tormented by this piece because I also don't agree with most of the stuff that these groups do. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I mean, also it does, like, it's not like there was no smoke here. Right. Like, I mean, there is definitely smoke to at least bring into question. But like you said, a lot of the stuff is not new. Right. Like a lot of stuff has been voiced before. And um, I don't know. I think that like, you know, I don't I know how you feel about this, but like my I, I don't have many rules as like a journalist. But I would say that one of them is that I try not to um, insert motive when I don't know it. Do you know what I mean? And like, uh. I do think a lot of this type of reporting is predicated upon that, right? Like uh, people want to believe that there is right. a shadowy network of money that actually controls the world mm-hmm. and that people, that many of the expressions that you see outside of what is dead straight down the middle, liberal, like right <laughs> to the set, like two hairs to the <laughs> left of center, liberal politics that anyone who says anything other than that is a liar or is being paid off by somebody who has like ulterior financial motives. Right. Yeah. And like, I just hate that shit because it's like, yes, there is money out there. Right. Mm-hmm. That money does fund things, but like, do you really, that it it's falling into the same trap that people use to talk about Soros, right. Saying, well, actually, you know, what's really happening is that Soros, the reason why Soros is, funding all these progressive prosecutors, for example, right, is because he wants to destabilize American cities, right? Like, I mean, um, and he wants to destroy American democracy and American <laughs> plurality, and he wants to have each city descend into, like, race madness, right? Like, that's like that's the argument, right? Like, that is like an implicate, that is an insertion of motive around the fact that a large portion of money is going from one bank account to another, right? And, um, I agree with you. I just found this piece to be a little bit strange in that sense, because like all of the malice is implied, but it's implied like with a, it's not like a light nudge. It's like an elbow to the head type of thing. (laughs) (laughs) It's just like, all right, you know, like, I don't know. I think it's very possible that like a leftist dude who got rich is spending his money on this type of thing. You can call it propaganda if you'd like, but like, you know, I don't know. I don't get it. If his if his interests align with China, you can say that sucks, but it's very weird to say that everybody to the left of you basically is lying and is like a plant, you know? I don't know. Yeah. That's a part that, yeah. That, and that I do think that that was in this piece, don't you? I do. And I think that it's a symptom of a, a certain kind of kind of like China reporting too that you see a lot where it's any anytime there's anything sort of favorable to the Chinese model you know, it, the the starting point is that it's propaganda and that um, people have a very cozy relationship with officials and that's why they're doing it. Like they're bought off. Right. You know, they haven't reached a sort of organic understanding of it. Again, I've, I feel so weird about this discussion because I am not trying to defend the Chinese government, but it just puts you in this position as a reader and as a, you know, some sensible person like of like, well, gosh, if this is the reaction of most liberals to this sort of thing, then, you know, maybe these people do have something to say. I don't know. Um, I'd be curious, like, what the reaction of of Brian and some other people who do that work more closely is. But um, I guess my feeling is, yes, I think from a journalistic perspective, there are other ways to approach this sort of thing. And it just seemed like a sort of cheap McCarthyite right. shot me yeah i mean your objection is mostly stylistic here right like you think that this should be reported on 
I guess so. Yeah. And I just don't know that there's a lot of there there. I mean, there's, you know, again, yeah, people spend their money on places. They have relationships with governments when they're rich. Like, basically all rich people have relationships, like, appear at things that government officials are at as well. So it's just, it, it, it feels very, as you were saying, smoky. Um, did yeah. you did you follow this stuff about <laughs> Richard Hanania, that guy online who no. got outed? What's so that? R- Richard Hanania is like a Twitter guy who runs a Substack, and in the past he's very racist. He's a big proponent of human biodiversity, for example, which is the Steve Saylor term about Oof. you know genetic differences over time yeah. within groups. He basically just saying that like some groups are smarter than others. We all know what that means, right? Jeez. Anyway, like the Huffington Post wrote this story they found his old burner account basically and this thing was like horrifically racist oh god um anyway that he comes out and he gives this ridiculous apology where he basically isaac chotner had the funniest line about it i think where he was like i am i wanted to write this to say i'm not 98 out of 100 racist i'm only a 96 <laughs> out of 100 <laughs> racist something like that which is basically oh, no. what he said you know that's hysterical um but What's interesting is that, like, this guy is being paid by, like, I'm almost positive that he has some source of funding that's independent that nobody knows about, you know? Okay. And people do religiously track that type of funding that takes place, right? And they sort of report on it and they make certain, cast certain aspersions about it. But, like, and they give certain ideas about, well, why is this happening, right? So, for example, like Chris Rufo, who's the, you know, CRT guy who's run DeSantis's head of education, you know, everybody sort right. of had been exhausted with this guy. And the idea is like, well, is this really just like the DeVos family or somebody like that who actually just wants to destabilize public education in America, right? Uh-huh. Um, that's probably true too, right? And so I'm not saying that there's no value in seeking these things out. Oh, yeah. But no. Sometimes I do think that like, it has almost become so determinative, right, that the actual arguments that are being made, not in Hanania's part because it's just basic straight up <laughs> race so science, cool. right, yeah. that um, there's almost this dismissal of it and that the world then appears to just be, well, who is writing the checks, right? Right. Now, I can understand yeah. why somebody would think that that was a very compelling way to reduce the world, but I think the reality of it is that, like, it's not quite so obvious right and if it was then you and i would be getting checks from somebody (laughs) and and we're not right and that the vast majority of people who express opinions in public and with some form of platform i don't think are being paid in this type of way now does that mean that the short the few instances where they are are more interesting i don't know i don't think so right because i think that outside of twitter or whatever, these people aren't very influential, right? And so it might just be like a bad investment in some sorts of ways. I think that's a really good question too. Like what is the actual spread of these ideas? What does it lead to? What is the kind of saturation? You know, if if in fact like this is an extremely effective vehicle for spreading Chinese propaganda, then a discussion of that would probably be helpful, you know? <laughs> but yeah, so I think I think we're we're all the same page around the sort of like fetishization of the follow the money story. Right. Right. Um, and, yeah. Ugh, anyway, I hope, I don't know. I, I appreciate you just thinking with me through it because I, there's not an easy answer. I also just think like it's, it's probably like it raising my blood pressure because it's just gets to this very hard question of like, yeah, what do you do when you are trying to critique the U S in 2023? <laughs> yeah. And well, you care a, about winning, right? That's, that's another thing. That's another interesting question. I don't know. Like, do you feel like I I was thinking about this recently. Do you feel right now that um, critique? I was thinking about this just because of Oppenheimer and some of the Uh stuff that I've been seeing. But do you feel like there is more space now and more of an audience for critiques of U.S. empire than there were when we were like growing up in the 90s, for example? Yes. You do. But I also think there's less now than there was like three or four years ago. <laughs> okay. So I, yeah, I mean, which is to say, obviously, that this stuff is really episodic. But, but yeah, I mean, I think there is. And then you run into a situation like with the war in Ukraine, and then 
you're supposed to sort of sit on your hands again with that critique, you know? So I, I don't know. I always feel like there are these like moments of opening, um, but then somehow they're kind of closed off by some new military action or, or this kind of thing that we're talking about where the options seem to be, you can either be a tanky (laughs) or you can be, you can go work at the white house, you know? So um, yeah, I think that search for the middle ground. I mean, I guess that's part of the project of this podcast, but um, yeah, it's interesting. I think it's it's very hard. I guess like I think about it and I think about like in the nineties, for example, you know, like Noam Chomsky is this huge public intellectual and that there is a real, real sort of focus on what's happening in Latin America, for example. Right. Definitely coming out of the Reagan era. Right. And that, um, that, energy seems to not be there on an on an intellectual side but i also think right now you have a much larger percentage of the population that is skeptical of any war effort that the united states is going to get into yeah you know and that um that's probably much more important than us not really having like a gnome Chomsky figure right (laughs) um and yet more is known you know it's just like there's so much accumulated history of what the u.s has done right right but like I would say that like you know this idea that there is more um, that such critiques are not taking place in places like the New York Times or whatever. I don't know. It, they weren't taking place in the New York Times back uh, yeah. then either. Well, that's true. You know? that's like true, half yeah. of manufacturing consent is Noam Chomsky complaining about the New York Times. <laughs> that's true. To a point where it like almost makes me not particularly interested in the book when I was rereading it. Do you know what I this mean? This is his media critique book, right? Yeah. Right. No disrespect to Noam Chomsky, but like, it's like there's, that book is so fixated on a couple newspapers that are... <laughs> the ones he at, reads every morning. Right. At the time, did, yeah. had much less reach than they have today, for, for True. example. You know? Right. When um, the local newspapers actually existed. Right, right. Yeah. It's not like everyone was reading the New York Times yeah. back then in the way that, you know, everyone of a certain class these days probably does read the New York Times. Like Maybe he should reissue that book to the present because literally there's like three newspapers now. So I know, I know. Well, it's interesting <laughs> because uh, I had this moment of annoyance when I was working there that um, I think everyone who works there has this moment of annoyance. It's a very human <laughs> level of annoyance, which is just that like, I do understand the critiques of it, but like the fixation that people have with that paper on Twitter mm-hmm. feels deranged in a lot of ways, right? Like mm. they feel like like the way that they talk about it, like nobody forms an opinion on their own unless the New York Times tells them to, right? And that every single person in America is waiting with bated breath for the New York Times webpage to update every five <laughs> seconds with a new story. And that I just found it quite annoying because the people I knew there were did not fit the description of the way in which people talked about mm. the paper and like the idea that there was some conspiracy there. Like I was just like, this is like, come on, guys, like you don't understand how chaotic this is, right? Like it's just, <laughs> it's just there's editors. no planning. Everyone yeah, wakes yeah. up and is like, what do we do today? Yeah. If there's a room yeah. where they all get together and say, look, this is the agenda. Like, I don't believe that that's true. Now, <laughs> yeah. is it true that certain, you know, the fact that almost David Brooks actually wrote about this recently, right? Which is that. Oh, really? Yeah. The fact that everybody comes from the same background. Does that determine uh, the coverage? Mm-hmm. Of course it does. Right. That's yeah. the actual critique to make. Oh, I didn't see that. But. I think that the reason why people fixate so much on the New York Times in some ways is that because the the DNA for that type of critique was laid down by manufacturing consent. That's funny. <laughs> you know, it's just like... They're just following Chomsky's lead. And- right. <laughs> by the way, so is Tucker Carlson. Tucker Carlson only talks about the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, you That's know? That's true. Um, and it's like, it's almost become this like weird hmm. That's a, thing that's a, yeah. where there is a bulb i don't know how to describe it except visually right but you have like almost like this colony that's attached itself to this thing and then the colony exists and it centers (laughs) itself around the thing that it's attached to and of course it decides that like okay this is a sun and we're all orbiting around it right but it not doesn't have much perspective on what's happening outside of it um maybe it's just because twitter has too many media people on it so they're all people who have some relationship to the times or have been aggrieved by them or want to work for them right 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 and it's also like the sort of architecture of the site where you see things come by you yes and you rank them in your head by how important they are 
And the New York Times is probably the most important thing that comes through your your feed over and over and over again, right? Or at least the thing with the veneer that seems to be important. But um, I don't know. I, 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 I think that it's like a very strange phenomenon that these things are talked about endlessly in that sort of way. Yeah. And yet, like, well, uh, I, didn't, I, I didn't follow what the sort of discourse was around this piece. But I do think, yeah, this this is probably the sort of story that where the Twitter tale of it is maybe more significant even than the thing that is being investigated in the right. story. Um, anyway, that's enough on that. But but yeah, I think um, we'll continue to talk about things like this because it's just going to come up more again and again, I think, as China becomes more powerful and rich. Yeah, I I kind of think it. Yeah, I don't know. I go back and forth. It's it's too hard to really tell. But I just think that Americans are about to enter like a another era of deep chauvinism in a way. Um, mm. And because Trump is going to run again. Right. Oh God, yeah. And because uh, the question is once again going to be put like, well, what is the future of America? I just don't know if geopolitics in any way are going to be relevant until the end of this next election, right? Wow. And um, I don't know, it's somewhat exhausting for us thinking about it as people whose job it is to cover it. But I just have <laughs> a hard time believing that anyone's really gonna care about China. I mean, what is, has Trump even said anything about China, right, so far? Has Biden said anything about China? I don't think so, right? Not like recently. Has, has DeSantis said a word about China? No, right? Yeah. They, talking about the same stuff you're just talking about like trans kids it's very yeah as i say it's very small it's very like domestically focused right now right now what's it now desantis is doing his big reboot now and um (laughs) maybe he'll decide to just go hard china hawk but i i just have i just don't believe it you know yeah i'll believe it when i see it but uh i don't see any of the candidates right now really making that big of a fuss Mm -hmm. about it um but yeah anyway Good, good conversation All right. topic. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for listening to the show. Uh, we do this every week. Um, if you'd like to contact us, it is time to say goodbye pod at gmail.com or you can email us. You can reach us on Twitter at TTSG pod. Um, if you'd like to contribute to the show, join our Discord community. It is $5 a month at goodbye.substack.com or patreon.com slash TTSG pod. Tammy, until next week. See ya.